Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Second floor of the EC building here at Bethel University. It's election shock therapy. We're back. We're all here. It's the end of the semester. The finals are looming, gentlemen. They are looming. Yep, they are. I am writing them. <laughs> Do you want to offer any students who might be listening one question that's going to be on your final exam? <laughs> uh, one, one, one question that will be on my final exam will be something along the lines of uh, explain the right to privacy um, and the cases that go along with it. So what does it mean? And that's for your that's for the constitutional, constitutional history class. class. Yep. Okay. Mm. Mr. Um I'm still writing the African politics one, um, but they should expect a, a question on how um, the relationship between the states and the national government has changed over time in America. So. Hmm. Uh, Professor Mulberry, you're on sabbatical. I am not giving an exam. You're so not giving yeah. an exam. And Would you like to tell us instead some great movie or TV show or book that you've seen recently? Sure. I was watching <laughs> it this morning. It's called Why We Teach. Uh, it premieres next Wednesday uh, at 7 p.m. in CC313. So if you're listening to this and you're in the you know metro Twin Cities metro area, you should come. It's this, free. This is uh, Professor Mulberry's sabbatical project. He yeah. made a movie. I did. He did. I did, yeah. Um, I want to ask you – I don't want to take – you know, we, we, we we'll do a pot about here. it. We'll do a pot about it. Okay, sweet, yeah. sweet. Yeah. We'll get Sean Fantasy. That's we'll, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do a deep dive. <laughs> Maybe James Lipton. There we go. That, that works. Okay. Um, uh, I actually one of my exam examining methodologies is I actually give for my upper level class I give the students all the exam questions before a week before the exam so they already mm-hmm. have the exam. That's questions. the exam equivalent of having class outside, Chris. No, here's what happens. <laughs> so they get a dozen it's not that uh, nice. pretty pretty thick essay questions a week in advance and then the morning of the exam I I roll a 12-sided dice twice. Oh, that's totally cool. And man. then they get those are the two <laughs> questions they get yeah. for the final exam. I thought you just said here's the four questions you're going to answer, but no, but yeah, if you give them a bunch of questions and then they have to write on some of them, that's great. Yeah. If you oh, that's yeah. Totally If you roll good. the same number twice, do they only have to do one answer? <laughs> uh no, I, I that actually came up one of the first years I did okay. this, and no, you're rolling the same question twice does not mean there's one question worth the whole, okay. the whole, the whole shooting match. Uh, I'll, I'll do a reroll. That feels like something you would do, though. Like it feels like does anything special thing happen you might if try. you roll doubles like that? You know, I, I actually toyed with the idea of letting them pick, like make it, make it become a wild card. Like they could just pick the question they wanted to answer on, for the second question. But you could, yeah. I haven't done like, that. Yeah. But then you have to ask, like, is it first past the post? Do you have a majority runoff system? <laughs> like, there's a lot of things to. They all get to there. vote on the questions. It's a democracy. Yeah, yeah, you can vote on all the eleven uh, remaining be... questions. But then, do you, does it just like whoever wins the most votes in the first round, or <laughs> we actually get to we actually off? expend the two hour exam period of time <laughs> and they haven't actually begun writing yet? Yeah, hashing out an electoral system for your right. exam. Uh-huh. <laughs> but if they can reach something approaching uh, electoral parity, then I they all get an A. <laughs> <laughs> and we can joke about about all this because there's nothing happening politically in the world, right? Right. No. It's oh boring. no, it's a pretty dry season right Donald now. Donald Trump continues to be a boring sort of you know no drama president. So there's so there's some things because we're political scientists and we're not pundits. We just want to let people know up front before you go ahead and delete this podcast. There's some things we're not going to talk about today, uh, other than what I'm going to say right now. 
We're okay. not going to talk about Stormy Daniels. We're uh. not. We're not. We're not going to talk about <laughs> hotel rooms in Russia. Uh, we're not going. To, we're probably not going to talk very much about the 2,500 pages of documents that the um, Senate just released. Um, we're probably not going to talk about the fact that today is the one-year anniversary of Robert Mueller's appointment as special investigator and mm. the Mueller investigation. We're probably not going to talk about the extremely exciting Western Conference Finals for the NBA, um, mm-hmm. despite my otherwise desire to do so. Or the World Cup that's coming up in you know, four weeks. Uh, the That'll United States did not pod. qualify, and so I therefore do not care. No, I'm, I'm teasing, teasing, teasing. <laughs> is, is Senegal in the... Senegal is in. It's only their second time in. All right. We'll give, we'll, we'll, give you, we'll give you two minutes take it to break down the Senegalese 11. <laughs> it's okay. All right. I'm um, not that into it. But we are going to talk about some things where we can lend some political science analysis to what's happening in the world. And we want to start um, with a little bit of looking back and looking forward. Mm-hmm. So, gentlemen, as you, um, other than some fairly silly Lord of the Rings and, and uh, uh, type podcast, Star Wars podcasts, it's been a while since we talked about real world politics. What's mm-hmm. an event or two that you look back on this spring as saying, these will be the really consequential events that, will sh- that have shaped our political environment? What are the things that, as political scientists, people should hold on to for the long term? Uh, I mean, when I, uh, some, a couple of the first things that immediately come to mind are uh, President Trump's actions uh, regarding foreign policy. Uh, those seem to be perhaps mm-hmm. the most substantial. I know we're going to talk about those a little bit later, but um, mm-hmm. if I was sort of immediately thinking about the things that are probably going to uh, really mark uh, the, the, you know, the, this last spring, mm-hmm. um, pu- you know, pulling out of the Iran uh, deal mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some of the upcoming uh, things with things with North Korea are probably going to be pretty pretty substantial. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other than other than those things, um, you know, actually, you know, in many ways, you know, I think I think you're right as far as the wanting to exclude the punditry. As as much as the Trump presidency is never boring, it's often uh, not boring in the sense that of uh, that sort of a reality show isn't boring. Mm-hmm. There's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff happening on the surface and not a lot of substance um, underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while you know there's always some new controversy mm-hmm. with Trump statements or uh, you know, some kind of, you know, new antic by somebody in his mm-hmm. administration. Uh, it, oftentimes that hasn't resulted in uh, enormously consequential policy mm-hmm. change. Um, mm-hmm. And as usual, and I think this is actually where there is a lot of social science to, to think about, as usual, presidents are relatively, find it very difficult actually to do anything in domestic policy. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they can they can they can make uh, changes in terms of the bureaucracy, which Trump has been working on. So there have been right. things at the EPA, things like that, where regulations have been rolled back. Um, and those are substantial. I mean, some of those are some of those are important. But the important thing to keep in mind is just as they're relatively easy to roll back, they're also relatively easy to put back in place with a new president. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those in terms of like long term consequences, um, are, are less substantial than what the president can do in terms of foreign policy, which is mm-hmm. where the president has much few, has way fewer checks. In some cases, almost no checks on their power, and can make substantial actions. So, anyway, that's my sh- longer than short take, but <laughs> that, that's what we should hold on to. Um, yeah. Andy, things that we should hold on to, and then next on our next go round, I'm going to ask you guys things that are ephemeral, but. Yeah, I, hold on to. No, I, I agree with Mitch. I think the the foreign policy pieces, I mean, for the reasons he just articulated really well, are probably the important ones. I mean, in, in a couple ways. I mean, the North Korea one is feels like a complete wild card right now. I mean, where is this going to go? Is this going to weaken us in regard to them? Is it going to strengthen us? Can he actually get some kind of deal, right? I mean, and, and if he gets a deal, will it be a good deal or will he be so desperate for a deal that he'll just 
take anything that looks like a, kind of a win, right? Um, but whatever it ends up doing, I mean, it's, it's I think, pretty clearly shaking up our relationship with North Korea. Um, now, could that settle into something that looks very much like our old one? Sure. I mean, those, those mm-hmm. kind of power dynamics are, are you know, that are underlie all this are still there, and I think that could that could happen. But um, but that's that's a big shakeup, and and so there's a lot of right now. I just don't feel much clarity in terms of you know where that's going. Um, but it's you know it's certainly moving it in a way that it hasn't. Um, although it could move back to where it was. The Iran thing I think is important too. I agree with what Mitch said, and I think it's important in another way too, in the sense that it it is in the sense us seeding the field to Europe, right, and saying. Um, because one of the or Iran's reactions was we're not necessarily going to pull out of this deal um, if we can work this out with Europe, um, which in some ways is us saying, OK, Europe, if you want to take the leadership here and they may well want to. Right. Um, then you can do that. Right. And so it's we, you know, we could be kind of marginalizing ourselves ourselves and that that could have some long term consequences for U.S. foreign policy um, on the home front. I, I think I agree with Mitch, like a lot of it has just been. You know, it's a lot of noise, but I'm not sure what's really shifted in terms of big term, long term consequences since the tax bill, which, of course, we've already talked about. Well, there are some things, but they're maybe not happening in Congress. So or um, so I want to come back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I should preface and say I, I know we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. So I should say yeah, right. there are some extremely substantial things coming out of the Supreme right. Court. Uh, right. But um, in, in many ways, I guess that actually should be saved for the looking forward round because mm-hmm. the court has not ruled on most of the most the substantial things here yet. So. Uh, Sam, you've been blissfully on sabbatical, um, and, but but you've also been cutting together a full length, feature length documentary. Um, is there anything that's that's penetrated the the walls of the seminary uh, that you want to hold on to? Uh, not especially. <laughs> I mean, I really I really have taken the opportunity to at times sort of check out, and so I, that's why I'm excited to have this because I'm kind of checking it. Like I'm basically a listener right now. So, <laughs> well, let me let me um, I'll, I'll throw in here too. I think. Uh, I think since the fairly uh, stunning and, and rapid decision by the Trump administration to or engage with the North Korean regime, mm-hmm. a lot of what's happened since then has been a lot of noise. And we're still looking mm-hmm. for a signal in that noise, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that we're going to find one yet. Mm-hmm. But we are moving towards the potential of a summit. And we're not quite out of the range of politics as usual with the North Koreans yet, but depending mm-hmm. on how that summit plays, we really could be. Mm-hmm. Um I would say the thing I want to, I think I'll hold on to more than that over the course of these um, next couple of weeks is one thing that's been talked about a lot and one thing that's not been talked about a lot. So the thing that's been talked about a lot is um, the Trump administration's decision to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal or Mm. more technically, if you'd like, the JCPOA. Um, This uh, this, this disagreement did not get rid of Iranian nuclear weapons. To be clear to our listeners, Iran does not currently possess nuclear weapons. What Iran possesses is a nuclear program and a capacity to enrich uh, uranium. You need highly enriched Mm -hmm. uranium to produce a nuclear weapon and a a program to produce ballistic missiles and a delivery Mm -hmm. system. What the program did was it put a halt to Iranian Iranian uranium enrichment and it curtailed a ballistic <laughs> mm-hmm. missile development program. It didn't do it permanently. Right. In exchange for basically a 15-year freeze, it allowed Iran to reduce and or to basically end a number of sanctions related right. to their nuclear program. And it allowed for a certain inspection regime. Critics of the plan argued the inspection regime was not severe and invasive enough. 
mm-hmm. and it argued that the problem was it simply kicked the can down the road. It didn't permanently denuclearize Iran. It just right. got them to push a pause button for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. That was Trump's criticism, or the Trump administration's criticism of the of the nuclear deal. With the United States pulling out of the Iranian nuclear deal, out of the JCPOA, uh, it does clear the way if Iran wanted to use that as a cause mm-hmm. uh, to begin a, a, a nuclear enrichment right away again. And assuming that they have the capacity to begin that nuclear enrichment right away, they could probably have enough fissile material to produce a nuclear warhead fairly quickly, maybe within a year. Hmm. Uh, it's not clear what the Iranians are, te- are really going to do at this point. It's The Europeans are trying very hard to maintain the JCPOA, which puts the United States and Trump in a very interesting policy position. On the one hand, we could, and I posed this question to my students yesterday, we could just say, we're done with this deal, this is a bad deal, but we're not going to do anything to disrupt the JCPOA. We're going to, uh, we'll, uh, we'll allow it to continue if the Europeans want to deal with this, mm-hmm. but we're, we're going to do other things which work orthogonally to the mm-hmm. JCPOA. We're going to sell Israel uh, bunker-busting bombs to, if Israel once feels threatened or wants to, mm-hmm. they can they can take out Iranian nuclear sites with with airstrikes. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to do something, we're, we're going to do something else. The other option would be to actively undermine what the Europeans are trying to do with the JCPOA, uh, which is what really what Trump promised to do. Now that he carries mm-hmm. out that promise is interesting. What he promised to do was to put on extensive sanctions. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know the term he used, but it was something like the harshest ever or something like that, mm-hmm. um, which is weird because Iran doesn't have a lot of economic intercourse with the United States anyway. So mm-hmm. to have really harsh economic sanctions, you would need several other players to buy into that. And right. all those other players right. are the ones who agreed to the JCPOA, not right. just the Europeans, but particularly the Russians and the Chinese, right. who so far have not shown any willingness to abandon the program either. Yeah. Uh, they, they have, they've been happy to continue to open up trade with Iran, and they're the ones who benefit the most from it. So... The United States has the potential to undermine this deal by by putting those sanctions in place, but right. it's not clear that it actually provides any compellence to Iran in the first place. The United mm-hmm. States may have really just hampered itself in its ability mm-hmm. to influence Iran by by withdrawing from the deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Unless what we're really threatening is some kind of stick rather than a carrot, some kind right. of military attack, airstrikes, or enabling Israel to do those same kinds of things. Yeah, which is, I mean, possible because Trump agitates like this. But, I mean, that would be such an irony right after his campaign in 2016 in which he really criticized Republicans um, for that very thing. I mean, he was very hard on George W. Bush in particular, right, um, just saying this was wrong, this was just not in our interest. This was a bad idea, right? Um, so if he were to get involved in Iran in that way, I mean, it just seems like it's, it would be very strange. It is in keeping, though, with the shift his his, his mm-hmm. uh cabinet has taken well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Bolton <laughs> people like Pompeo and John Bolton yep. are significantly more hawkish yep. than Tillerson um, uh, Michael Flynn um, right. go back go back in the way back <laughs> machine uh, who um, who started with the Trump administration right. so Mitch you were going to say something no I was just going to say exactly that I mean especially since Israel immediately following us essentially um, felt free to go ahead and engage um, Iranian forces in Syria, um, which right. sort mm-hmm. of indicates that perhaps, um, you know, uh, there's been a leash is off a little bit. Yep. 
Yeah, it's it's it, it's not clear to it seems to me my analysis of this is the United States has lost leverage in the short term by uh, abandoning mm-hmm. the JCPOA and will only gain it back by harsher measures. Right. Yep. But we have the potential to make a different kind of nuclear deal. Let's talk a little bit about North Korea for a second. Can I ask you a question about Please. that? Um, just because I'm asking you guys as as political scientists and Chris maybe as an IR person, um, how often does it happen or does it happen where things will go this far down the line that a meeting's going to happen and then it doesn't? I mean, or, or is it the kind of thing where once you're at this point, it definitely does? So this is atypical for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. My general answer to you is by the time we get this close to some kind of a, leading, a, a meeting between leaders, uh, it almost always happens unless it's it, at, at this kind of level of, of intensity. Mm-hmm. Right. There are times when the president will travel abroad. For example, President Bush, President Obama both traveled to Africa. They have on their plate uh, a plan to meet four or five leaders but something happens in the context of the, of American politics back home. They have to be they have to get back home sure. or something, right. and all of a sudden they're no longer meeting with one or two of those leaders. Uh, that happens, but for something where there's a high level, essentially summit level diplomacy with another country's leader, you mm-hmm. get this close to declaring a meeting. It usually happens, and I say usually because the outlier in this case is North Korea. Okay, um, and and this and the mm-hmm. North Koreans fairly regularly would schedule, plan, and then withdraw from meetings uh, with American leadership and and view the meeting itself as a bargaining chip. The meeting isn't Mm -hmm. to discuss bargaining chips. The meeting is the chip. And Mm -hmm. uh, threatening to not go into the meeting or threatening to withdraw from a meeting is is part of the process by which they extract concessions Hmm. uh, from Mm -hmm. the United States. And the Trump administration, I hope, understands that and uses that as part of their, their, their bargaining calculus. The the other thing that that's I think that impacts this is that this is not a normal diplomatic summit. Um, normally, when the United States meets either with the North Koreans or with anyone else, there's an extended period of time by which these meetings are constructed at lower levels. The parameters of the meetings are discussed. The infrastructure the, or the undergirdings of what that meeting will look like, who will be there, mm-hmm. when it will take place, how it will take place really almost even up into the actual things that will be agreed upon are all hammered out ahead of time. And then the meetings themselves are carefully orchestrated events. Donald Trump has not followed that model. He very quickly uh, agreed to meet with Kim Jong-un at the suggestion of the South South Koreans um, and did so even without really consulting his own national security staff. Since that time, the meeting has developed very quickly without a lot of that preparatory matter from uh, lower-level State Department, Defense Department kinds of officials. And I would suggest that that does two things. It probably, on the first hand, means that we're entering into this much less prepared, which probably makes it more likely that not much happens. But there's also that possibility that because the meeting is less constrained, less undergirded with sort of essentially expectations we could see a more dramatic shift. Um, mm-hmm. President Trump, at least, um, has shown the capacity to be erratic. Erratic mm-hmm. in terms of deal making, his desire for deal making, his desire to shift American policy. And he does this in 
you know, in public statements on, on domestic mm-hmm. issues. He supports uh, health care for everyone. And then, oh, no, he wants to get rid of Obamacare. Well, and it sort of vacillates on certain issues that way. He can get away with that with Congress because Congress moves slowly enough that his advisors mm-hmm. can get out in front of him and say, well, that's not what the president meant. What he actually meant was the opposite. And we're not right. we're actually we're going to get rid of Obamacare. Don't worry. We're not going to have universal health care. Mm-hmm. Um, he can't necessarily do that in a face to face one on one with another country's leadership if he promises something they'll hold him to it and if he and, and if he sa- if he has to renege on something that he's promised that has um more significant repercussions for american foreign policy so if he just hypothetically if kim jong-un offers to denuclearize whatever that means for Kim Jong-un, in exchange for a complete American withdrawal of forces from the Korean Peninsula, and Trump says, sure, let's do it, and they shake on it, we're going to have to figure out what he means by pulling out uh, 35,000 American troops from from South Korea Mm -hmm. and and what the South Koreans think about that, what the Japanese think about that, and how that Mm -hmm. affects regional politics. And so... I have no symp- I, I have um, sympathy for the people who have to brief <laughs> and prep Donald Trump mm-hmm. for these face-to-face meetings. Mm-hmm. And this is scheduled for June, correct? Scheduled for June as of right now. Okay. I still highly anticipate this will happen. There have been some rumblings just in the last couple of days from some North yeah. Korean negotiators that if the United States doesn't uh, promise full denuclearization of the peninsula, uh, meaning the United States would pull out some of its forces including the north koreans seem to think that american nuclear subs make the sub make the peninsula mm-hmm. nuclearized so this would mean sort of a guarantee of of moving naval forces away from the peninsula which the united states relies upon mm-hmm. but um that if they don't if the united states doesn't put these things on the table then they're not going to meet however I've I've seen a, a few sources, a few American sources close to the situation, Korea experts, who argue that those statements aren't coming from Kim Jong-un. They're coming from lower levels of the North mm. Korean regime and that they're not speaking in a lockstep either. So I still believe that the, the, the summit is likely to happen mm-hmm. more so than not. So we're likely not going to podcast, bef- you know, uh, bo- again, do an EST again before June. Aww. I'm guessing, okay. right? You guys yeah, want to enjoy probably. your summers. I don't know. <laughs> I'll be here to podcast. I don't know if you guys are going to want to do this. Um, as a as a layperson watching the news um, when this is ha- happening and, and following this happening, what are things that we should be looking for that would be meaningful? Like meaningful in either direction. Like, oh, this would be a really positive thing if we hear – this or this would be a troubling thing if we hear this coming out of that meeting does that question make sense mm-hmm. yeah i just i i'm trying to think how to tap, tackle that as a hypothetical i mean um me, i guess i'll get nervous about so, big big switches just because for the reasons chris just said like i think that the likelihood is they won't have been cleared properly and then and so then like you you can't just remove all the forces from the korean peninsula for example right without talking to South Korea without talking to Japan, right? Um, thinking through those implications. And and the danger is Trump might just agree to that um, without saying, oh, well, of course, pending, you know, talking to these people. Um, and then that could cause some real, some real complications. But yeah. I mean, I think one of the big things to look for is something <clears throat> is, is to think about what are the, what, what are actual, what are actual concessions and what are non-costly concessions. Right. And I think that's the, that's the key one. I mean, 
you know, is, is North Korea giving up something that matters? So, for example, North Korea just recently agreed to close a nuclear testing site, which President Trump widely celebrated as, you know, basically a success for his high-pressure campaign. But in fact, that same nuclear site had just had a major uh, accident just a few months ago, if I remember right. Um, it was and, nearly inoperable. Right. And so essentially by closing it, uh, this is essentially costless. I mean, they really needed to right. shut it down anyway. And so this is an example of a non-costly thing, right? There's, you know, essentially there's nothing to celebrate there because this was already something that was a disaster for North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking for a litmus test, pay attention to Japan's... Uh, um, uh, uh, leader Shinzo Abe. Mm-hmm. Abe has been around for a long time. He's mm-hmm. he's conservative, um, but not he's not a strict realist. But he's he's quite conservative mm-hmm. in these these negotiations. If you see Abe being extolling something that's happened or if lamenting something mm-hmm. that's happened, that's a nice barometer that these negotiations have actually done something. Um, a fairly quiet Abe means that probably not much happened in terms of the negotiations. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. So he, so Abe's your canary, canary in the coal mine. Abe's my canary okay. in the coal mine. <laughs> right. um, he's uh, the the North, the South Koreans are much. I, my my impression of the regime, which it's a newer regime, mm-hmm. but are much more realistic and much more um, uh, concerned about their own security, sure. which I would expect them to be. <laughs> yeah. Abe is a be. little bit. It seems yeah. like he has a little bit more room to play, mm-hmm. um, and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think also Abe under, is actively trying to get President Trump's ear. Um, there's been a real outreach by the part of the, on the part of the Japanese to kind of court Donald Trump, mm. um, and it seems to have worked. Trump has had mostly nice things to say about Abe, mm. so we'll see mm-hmm. if that if that bears any fruit mm-hmm. as as he moves mm-hmm. forward here as an ally. Makes sense. All right. Have we dealt with all the nukes? We've got Iran. <laughs> we've got North Korea. Do you mm. want to talk about? No. Um, <laughs> what's uh, what I want to turn to is is the nuclear options inside the United States. <laughs> and um, I'm going to throw this over to Mitch. But Mitch, I know the all semester with your constitutional law class, you've been having students simulate some of the more recent pressing court cases. The summertime is a time when the court tends to release. Uh, decisions on cases the, for that for that session. Yep. What should viewers? What's a viewer's guide to the Supreme <laughs> Court? You could be our Nina Totenberg here for a few minutes. All right. So, uh, <clears throat> so so basically, in, in in my class, there's been two two major cases that students have been uh, have, have basically simulated, and uh, I assume are busy at work uh, writing writing their own opinions on right now, even as we mm, speak. Um, probably, <clears throat> but at any rate, um, there are there there are a handful of cases that are extremely significant, and the the two that are probably most significant, although obviously people might disagree with this, but uh, but basically the first one is Gill versus Whitford, um, and in that case, uh, this is the case over partisan gerrymandering in Wisconsin, and essentially uh, what that case revolves around uh, is, is a claim by Whitford and a number of other uh, uh, plaintiffs, voters in Wisconsin, who argue that uh, because Wisconsin has become so gerrymandered, their votes uh, no longer really mean anything. And so just as a quick little Summary, I mean, basically the way Wisconsin is gerrymandered, the state is there are a number of districts, eight if I'm remembering off the top of my head correctly, mm-hmm. um, where, where the districts have about 80% Democratic voters. Um, and essentially what that means is if you're a Democrat in that district, uh, you know, you can go to the polls, but you already know what's going to happen. I mean, you're, it's a foregone conclusion. And in a number of other areas, um, 
that have traditionally voted Democrat, the Republicans have done what's referred to, so that's referred to as packing. Um, the, the Republicans have done what's referred to as cracking, where they've divvied up these traditional Democratic strongholds in a way that they will not be a majority. And so it's a way to gain mm -hmm. Republican seats. And so essentially, you know, what this has resulted in is the Republicans uh, who receive, uh, in the first election, so this would have been in 20, uh, 2012, um, Republicans actually got just under uh, half of the popular votes for the Wisconsin Assembly and got, uh, uh, boy, I should have brought my papers in with me, but if I remember right, it's 60 of the 99 Assembly seats. So with less than half mm -hmm. of the popular vote, they got a supermajority in the Assembly as a result of these new district lines. That seems problematic. Uh, maybe. Um, now, give me a second here and I'll, okay. I'll get the other side here. Right. But, uh, but then, uh, you know, basically, uh, so, so, so the Republicans have done this. So that's, so that's on the one hand, um, uh, the counter argument, I guess I'll just, yeah, I'll just give the counter argument is that, uh, a similar outcome actually happened in 2002. Um, mm -hmm. and so if you go back to 2002, uh, the Republicans, it wasn't quite that stark. Republicans had received 53% of the popular vote for the assembly. Um, but they still got a super majority of the seats. Okay. And so the argument from Wisconsin, um, is essentially that, uh, you know, this is just electoral games, this is electoral politics and, um, you know, essentially the court shouldn't be in the business of deciding which party controls the Wisconsin legislature, um, which essentially would, which is what they argue the court would be doing if they, if they intervened mm -hmm. in this case. Um, so essentially what the, what this case really boils down to is a couple of, couple of key, um, you know, legal things. And the first legal thing, um, which I think, which if I were, if this is just me being the armchair spectator, of course, you know, I haven't been, uh, you know, I, I'm not privy to the conference and what the court is going to decide sure. here. Yeah. But um, if I had to guess as far as how the court is going to decide this, I would guess that this case is going to hinge on standing, uh, which standing mm -hmm. is a legal term that essentially says, do the plaintiffs, the people bringing the case, mm -hmm. have the right to even bring the case before the court? Um, and essentially one of the, the, the major standard that the court has is, is there a concrete traceable injury to the party? Right. Mm -hmm. So there has to be something that you can really show with evidence then latch onto and say this person has been harmed. Um, and essentially what Wisconsin has argued is that uh, the Wisconsin voters can't show that they've been substantially harmed because, first of all, you know, there's been no denial of voting rights. Right. Everyone's still allowed to vote. You know, mm -hmm. no one no one has been. It's, this is not like, uh, you know, there's been some literacy test or something like right. that that's preventing people from voting um and so there's no harm there and then in addition to that um while the court has in the past ruled based on apportionment right basically forcing mm -hmm. states to make districts have equal numbers of people in them um right. the court has not really ruled um too strongly on saying what kinds of people have to be in those districts now mm -hmm. there's an exception to that which is based on race and we can that's what another wrinkle that sort of complicates this whole <laughs> this whole story but um but essentially the court has in general shied away um from actually telling states very specific criteria about how they do this and there's a very um deep constitutional reason for that which is sort of the second big issue here and that is to say who ought to be drawing these lines and who ought to set the criteria for that right mm -hmm. and so if you sort of so, so the first issue is standing the second issue is how do you understand what the constitution means as far as who decides voting laws right. and uh, article one section two of the constitution pretty clearly seems to indicate that it is states that get to decide voting laws 
Um, mm-hmm. And since this is, and since the Constitution indicates that this is a state-controlled mm-hmm. issue, um, then this be, this immediately then becomes sort of an issue of federalism. Is this an issue that the states, uh, you know, the Constitution essentially leaves to the states, and therefore they get to decide how they want to draw their district lines? Now, the rejoinder to that, and the 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 counter argument to the to the federalism issue is that the court has slowly and in fact the constitution itself even over the last hundred years especially has slowly um, given more and more federal guidelines to voting laws so beginning with the 15th amendment that says you can't uh, uh, um, basically prevent people from voting based on race and also Mm -hmm. then in uh, the 19th amendment granting women the right to vote Mm -hmm. um, the 26th granting uh, younger americans the right to vote right so we have this constant movement further and further to say in to voting laws um and this also includes rulings by the supreme court to basically say um you know this gets us back to the race issue which is to say the court has allowed um Mm -hmm. uh states to basically gerrymander and in fact even in fact federal statutes even to some degree mandate that there should be an attempt to make districts that uh give a majority minority status right that essentially have a majority of of racial minority within them so that that so Mm -hmm. that race will receive representation in congress so all that is to say, if those laws are all in place, then maybe it is the case, right, that the, that the court ought to rule that this is an infringement on voting rights and, um, and, that essentially, uh, uh, and, and that essentially Wisconsin is denying people the right to vote based on uh, partisanship. That's the, essentially the essential argument here, right, mm-hmm. is that partisanship has become, uh, you know, you basically, basically Wisconsin is drawing these lines based on partisanship, and that essentially undermines pe- the efficacy of people's votes. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know, obviously everyone is sort of speculating where this case right. is going to come down. Um, you know, my only just to sort of look at this, I mean, historically and in previous precedents here, the court has been extremely cautious when it comes right. to intervening in election laws. Preferring um, to leave the matter to state legislatures. Exactly. Right. Um, they've essentially, this is usually what's referred to again in the court language. This is usually what's regarded as a political question. Mm-hmm. And the court mm-hmm. does not want to, traditionally does not want to insert itself into political questions. Um and so, I, I, you know, again, my gut is to say the court is going to rule this one as an issue of standing um, and to say which would ultimately favor Wisconsin um, and say that, you know, the, the plaintiffs didn't have the, you know, there's no concrete harm. So um, but I don't know. I mean, it's it's it, it remains to be seen. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has said that she thinks this is the most substantial case before the court of this term. And that might indicate that, you know, she thinks that they uh, uh, that basically uh, the court has a majority that will overturn Wisconsin's uh, map. So we'll see. Okay, I have a couple questions for sure. you. And then I'm, I'm sorry I don't want to dominate, but when uh, first thing first, when someone uh, like Notorious RBG uh, <laughs> says something like that, this is the most significant case before the court this term, is she playing politics or is she working with the other eight members of the court? Is she trying to lobby somebody by saying that? Is she trying to get in uh, Anthony Kennedy's head? It's very possible. Um, yeah, obviously, and, and not only perhaps Anthony Kennedy. I mean, it's also the possibility of trying to lobby uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, yeah. uh, who also, uh, you know, obviously, chief, while while Roberts is certainly conservative, um, and therefore one would imagine would lean more towards. Um, you know, a more traditional understanding of federalism that would leave right. this matter to the states. Um, he also, uh, you know, Roberts has also shown himself to want to, at times, insert himself in a way that uh, that that, uh, that basically leaves a legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, and so this might be an attempt to to try to sway Kennedy. It might be an attempt to try to sway Roberts. Um, and uh, yeah, this this. Um, and in addition to that, I mean, this also, I think, you know, her 
desire to frame this essentially as a voting rights issue mm-hmm. um, is also an attempt to appeal to uh, a more a, a more traditional understanding of, of 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 what the Constitution's about. I mean, if the Constitution, if you view voting rights, you know, as a core fundamental protected right, and this is a threat to it, um, then this seems like it would have a wider appeal than to to, to more justices than just the the quote unquote liberal wing. Okay. Mm-hmm. My next question is this. Let's, I'm going to play out both scenarios here. So on the mm-hmm. one hand, let's say we the court rules in favor of the plaintiffs, mm-hmm. argues that Wisconsin has unfairly gerrymandered its districts. Um, does that then compel Wisconsin to, we, to, to redraw its districts? Yes. So Wisconsin would then have to redraw the districts. And this is where things get also a little bit sticky. And this was mm-hmm. so during oral arguments, this was particularly Justice Kennedy's main line of questioning. So Kennedy's main line of questioning was, if we rule with the plaintiffs and overturn these, what kinds of tests should we establish that will be neutral and not overly insert the court into actually having to draw literally draw the district lines right. themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, what kinds of tests and instructions can we give to state legislatures and other bodies that states have appointed to to draw these lines so that they can know precisely what the you know what the rules are essentially right. and um, there were a couple of ide- there were several ideas floated um, by the by the plaintiffs lawyers um, however there wasn't some single test that they could propose and so um, one of the issues that would immediately arise should the court side with the plaintiffs and one of the things to watch closely for, especially if they do this, is what exactly have they ruled? How have they ruled? Right. What kind of tests a and rules? A narrow ruling versus a broad ruling. Right. Is this a broad ruling that essentially says, here are rules that every state now must follow? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, what are those rules, of course, then? Right. Um, or is this a very narrow ruling that basically says... Um, you know, this is so obvious. And in fact, that was the part of the plaintiff's argument was just to say that this is so egregious. This is so obviously beyond anything that's been done before mm-hmm. that this particular particular case needs to be overturned. And so if the court were to rule that way, mm-hmm. that would just sort of indicate sort of that would sort of give notice to other states to sort of like, you know, we're not intervening now, but, you know, we've sort of given you notice that you know, watch. Bow. Yeah. Watch how far you yeah. go. Um So that could be the way the court rules. I don't know. That might be something if the court were going to rule with the plaintiffs that given that Kennedy seemed very dissatisfied um, with any of the tests that were sort of floated by the plaintiffs, um, that seems mm-hmm. like in some ways almost the best case scenario um, for him, but maybe not. Maybe he was, maybe he was swayed by more of these tests. I don't know. So, um, so we'll see. That's mm-hmm. the, um, on the other hand, um, you know, part of part, and, and I guess part of the other implications of this, and this is um, why Wisconsin was part of Wisconsin's argument is just to say, um, if they rule this way, does this then mean that the Supreme Court has essentially just um, invalidated an enormous number of states, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, district lines? Because most states are right. gerrymandered. Right. Yes. Um, and so, uh, if you know, given that most states are gerrymandered, at least to some degree, um, does that then mean that almost every state is violating voting rights to some uh, to right. some extent? Right. So, well, that leads to my next question, which yeah. is that. If the court rules against the plaintiffs yep. and allows Wisconsin's districts to stand, yep. are the campaigners against gerrymandering, which, by the way, include President Obama, who said that that's going to be one of his post-presidential legacies, is, is yep. trying to uh, get rid of gerrymandering, Are they? is this the last hope? Because, no. Okay. Well, how, yeah, how else not. could we cut into gerrymandering? No. So I th- and I think, you know, what the court... Um, 
and, and I think I think this actually gets to the thorniness of gerrymandering itself, and this is mm-hmm. why the court is probably hesitant to insert itself into this. Gerrymandering uh, is notoriously a dif- is a notoriously difficult problem to solve because anytime right. you draw district lines, it advantages some people and disadvantages others. Right. And so the question is always, well, how what kind of fair system can we put into place? Now there are a number of you know there are a number of social science theories of how you could do this, right. um, and some of them probably are you know, in that sense, relatively fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question always is, you know, but, 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 but again, this is why this is a political issue or a political right. question in the court's terms, um, is no matter which of these uh, relatively neutral methods you use, ultimately some people are advantaged and some people are disadvantaged. And so who gets to decide what level of advantage or disadvantage ought to be there? Um, and traditionally, the answer has just been state legislatures. State legislatures get to decide um, this, which obviously makes it a partisan process because mm-hmm. parties control the state legislatures. Sure. Um, and so, but th- but there are alternatives, and a number of states, including Ohio, actually most recently here, have embraced alternatives. And this is where probably the opponents of gerrymandering probably will end up focusing if the court rules against uh uh, the plaintiffs in this case, um, which is just to say you appeal to voters. You essentially mm-hmm. tell voters this isn't fair. This isn't democracy as we want to have it. And you then enact either through state legislatures or through an Ohio, uh, in Ohio's case, uh, a ballot initiative. Um, you essentially you essentially put a new process into place mm. that involves a bi- uh, bipartisan uh, panel of, of folks. to. Can to you really get a good bipartisan panel? I mean, uh or does the panel just, be, just become a stand-in for the politicization of the legislature? <laughs> it, it can, um, but oftentimes, if you're so, the way this often works out, and this is uh, in political science literature, the way basically what gerrymandering then turns to, if you have a bipartisan panel that has to agree, it essentially becomes a game for the parties to try to protect their incumbents. Um, and so essentially the rational motivation for each party is to say, we have certain people in this state that right. we want to keep in Congress and we want to keep elected. So let's make sure we draw safe districts for them mm-hmm. and maybe leave a couple of districts that are going to be contested. Um, but, but mostly it becomes a game then to protect your, your favorite incumbents, um, yeah. as you're, as you're drawing these lines. So, you know, and maybe that's beneficial in the sense that it becomes, more fair in the sense of you'll have a more even or at least you'll have a more proportional uh, number of Republicans and Democrats proportional to the popular vote. So in that sense, it's more fair. Um, on the other hand, it does not do away with this problem of safe seats where yeah. you have certain people who are protected um, and almost certainly can't be voted out barring um, either their death or some really enormous upheaval. <laughs> So what you're saying is that there's nowhere in the United States some clan of blind virginal nuns who have no <laughs> political interest whatsoever and could sort of be impartial arbiters of of, of uh, legislative districts. Yeah, not really. I mean, okay. you know, arguably, I mean, and, and some arguments say, well, maybe the you know, maybe this should be thrown to the courts and just let the courts because they can be nonpartisan arbiters of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but even there, I mean, there's there's always issues of some somebody's going to be advantaged, somebody's going to be disadvantaged, and you know, justices themselves, of course, obviously, once again, there aren't sort of it's very difficult to have sort of set principles and tests for this because again, we're talking about maps and geography. It's not sure. like there's uh, it's just, you know, it's a super easy thing. So yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's short answer. It, it, 
there isn't anybody who's completely not interested. Well, what's interesting what you're saying, though, mm. is there's a difference between being partisan and someone being advantaged, though. Because you can come up with a system that's sure. completely nonpartisan. Yeah. I mean, you could just right. come up with an algorithm mm-hmm. that, did it, that, that, that did it. Now, someone would be advantaged, but that doesn't mean it's a partisan algorithm. It just means mm-hmm. that algorithm right. happens to advantage someone. Right. right. That's exactly right. And um, the, the issue where it immediately sort of falls, and this is the problem, of course, that it falls back into partisanship because there are multiple algorithms right. that are nonpartisan. And that becomes the contested part. And that part. becomes then the contested part, right? right? Who's right. going to, which algorithm do we use? Yeah. Because we know, you know, we're sort of like looking down the tree. I'm just saying tree. Chris's blind nuns aren't partisan. They advantage someone. Right. That's right. true. That's right. true. Yes. Yes. Right. And because we don't start from zero, any move away from what we have right now changes the advantage. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Well, that's depressing. Um, uh, I'm going to need some carbs now. Can you talk to us about some cake? All right. Well, uh, so yeah, some cake. So the other big case, and there are a couple others uh, that I probably won't want to mention after this one, uh, like Trump versus Hawaii. But, um, but we we should probably do a minute on Trump versus Hawaii. But let's 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 do this. I'm not even aware of that, but I would watch that movie. Um, (laughs) Trump five zero. Yeah, Trump five zero. But anyway, no, the other big case that's before is before the courts uh, right now. This is these are probably this is the other big one. I think. Uh, is Masterpiece Cake Shop um, uh, uh, versus uh, versus uh, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and, uh, and essentially, um, what uh, what what this case boils down to is uh, a question of, of religious liberty and uh, gay rights. And so, um, Jack Phillips, who owns uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, is is essentially uh, well. Uh, so there are two two gentlemen, Craig and Mullins, who went into his cake shop in 2012. Um, to ask him to make a cake for uh, to sell to celebrate a reception for their marriage, which would take place, um, which was going to take place a little while later. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, as soon as uh, uh, it became obvious to Jack Phillips that this was going to be a same-sex marriage, uh, Jack Phillips uh, immediately said, and this is pretty close to a quote, if I remember right, but basically, I don't, I don't make cakes uh, for gay weddings. And uh, essentially, at that point. Uh, uh, Craig and Mullins left uh, the cake shop and filed uh, suit uh, and, and basically appealed to Colorado's um, uh, Civil Rights Commission, which is an, an administrative body that oversees uh, Colorado's civil rights laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found against uh, Jack Phillips and essentially ordered him not only to serve uh, all customers that come into his shop, but also to uh, undergo uh, training in civil rights um, uh, how do I want to say this? Uh, basically, undergo but under, undergo training in civil rights practice, and also to train his employees um, mm-hmm. in the Colorado law. Now, the particular statute at issue is Colorado has, as many states do, has a statute again that uh, basically says businesses are not allowed to discriminate based on a number of factors, but the most obvious being race, gender, um, and this. And Colorado, as many states also do, includes in that um, uh, you cannot discriminate based on sexual orientation. Uh, and so, essentially. Uh, uh, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission has argued. Uh, so maybe I should uh, just say. So here, so I'll give, I'll give both arguments here. <laughs> yes, so please. I'll start. I'll start with the Civil Rights uh, Colorado Civil Rights Commission. So uh, so essentially, their argument is that uh, Jack Phillips, in refusing to 
uh, serve Craig and Mullins has engaged in, in unlawful discrimination. And that essentially, just as we wouldn't uh, want discrimination to take place in other venues, you know, we wouldn't, for example, want uh, hotels to be able to discriminate against uh, either people of same sex orientation or, uh, you know, based on other issues like race or gender. We don't want to, uh, you know, if you go into a restaurant, everyone ought to be able to expect to be served by that restaurant. Um, and so essentially this, you know, their argument is that just like, just like race, just like, uh, you know, gender, uh, this is just another moment of, uh, business seeking to discriminate and that religion essentially can't be used as an excuse for this because at the moment you allow religion as an excuse, because the court has a very nebulous definition of religion and allows a wide range of things to count as religion, um, businesses could then use that to discriminate on, on almost any grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially this would open the door, this mm-hmm. precedent, a precedent in that way would open the door essentially to a hotel being able to say, well, my religion, uh, basically says that, uh, you know, uh, women shouldn't stay the night uh, without their husbands or something like that. And so therefore I'm not going to allow a single woman to stay in my hotel. You know, that's sort of an extreme example here, but, but it allowed, but it essentially it opens the door to any kinds of, of, of discrimination so long as you make some kind of religious claim. Um, And so essentially Colorado civil rights commission is then saying that all they're saying is that if Jack Phillips wants to have a business open to the public, he just needs to serve everyone, you know, just like any other business, all, you know, businesses are required to serve any customers that Mm -hmm. come in, um, regard, you know, so and, and I should bracket this and say businesses are allowed to discriminate in terms, uh, in terms that are not particular to the individuals themselves. So restaurants can still have, you know, no shirt, no shoes, no service signs Mm -hmm. (laughs) and discriminate in that way, because that doesn't have to do with, who the individuals themselves are. Um, but, but when it comes to these sorts of things, you know, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission is just arguing that, you know, discrimination um, just can't be allowed. And this is something that we have widely accepted when it comes to um, most categories, when it comes to individuals. You know, um, you know most, most folks now would be appalled, essentially, if, you know, if a hotel tried to turn people away because of their race or if a restaurant said they wouldn't allow people to, you know, to be serviced because of some basic characteristics of themselves. Um, so, so that's their argument. This essentially boils down to discrimination and, uh, and, and, and that that's, and that that's the most uh, important thing to focus on for this case. On the other side, um, on Jack, for Jack Phillips, he argues that this, uh, this is a two, he has sort of a twofold argument, both of them based on the first amendment. And essentially he argues that, uh, this is an issue of free expression and free exercise. So the free exercise of claim is basically that um, he ought to be able to live out his religion uh, in, in all aspects of his life, including his business. Um, and, you know, he draws on uh, recent court rulings, such as the court's ruling in Hobby Lobby that said mm-hmm. that businesses do indeed have the right to operate on and, and, con- and conduct themselves in mm-hmm. a religious manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially he argues that basically his refusal to make this cake is simply him ex- uh, following the dictates of his religion and therefore that ought to be protected even in his business deal. Um, his second argument, uh, which probably will go have more impact, I think, with the court. This is mm-hmm. um, again, I'm not privy to how they're thinking. You know, no one is privy to the conferences. But, um, but his second argument uh, is essentially that um, uh, that, uh, that 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 this is an issue of free exercise or uh, sorry, free expression. Mm-hmm. And so this is, in other words, a free speech uh, mm-hmm. issue. And so he has argued, and in the brief that he's that uh, he and his lawyers submitted to the court, they lo- argue at length, and they cited an enormous number of uh, academic and uh, culinary literature to say to essentially argue that cakes are indeed an art form, 
And if that is the case, if essentially mm-hmm. cake making, especially he is arguing that essentially his custom cakes, right? He's not arguing this as far as pre-made things, um, but he's essentially arguing that his custom cakes are works of art. And therefore, just as you can't compel an artist to make a particular art form, even if they are open to the public and open to public, you know, they will accept public commissions. Um, You can't compel an artist to create a certain form of art because essentially that is speech. Art has, and the court has been very clear that art is indeed protected speech. And therefore he says that by Colorado compelling him to make particular custom cakes, um, they are essentially violating his freedom of of expression by forcing him and compelling him uh, to make art. Or on the other hand, if they order him to no longer make custom cakes, if he won't service everyone, they are then silencing his speech because they're essentially prohibiting him from making art. Um, And so prohibiting him from selling art, um, not making Sure. He can he, sure he can still make it. Although in this sense, I mean that essentially would you know you could right. say the same for a painter, right? I mean you know we're not prohibiting you from making paintings; we're just prohibiting you from selling them, right? And so okay. it becomes sort of the same. Thing. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah. and Sam, do you think uh, an amicus curiae brief was submitted by Paul Hollywood? Without Duff or whatever. That's right. With, well, without without looking at it, there are a number of amicus curiae briefs on both sides for this, and mm-hmm. um, indeed, uh, there are some cooking interests that I think are concerned and watching this case, um, partially worried about what this might. The know, Betty Crocker not, lobby, not 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 so much worried, that, you know, not that they are inha- necessarily against gay rights, but that they're worried that this might undermine, in fact, the protect any kind of protected status um, their work might have as as speech and and art. Could you the think art of- component of this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I I, mm-hmm. it, I didn't I hadn't heard that part and like that yeah. now my head's kind of spinning because like that <laughs> yeah. that really complicates it. Well, it's a really it's a really compelling argument. I mean, yeah. if you absolutely if you stop yeah. and think about it, because it's um, it it is true. Like, there's a big distinction between on the one hand refusing, like you have a cake sitting there in the you know in your in your cooler, right? And you say I won't sell you that cake. Right? I mean that that I think is deeply problematic, right? Mm. It's like if the person shows up and there's a cake sitting in the cooler and you have money, they have money, you need to sell them the cake, right? But on the other hand, there's there's a big distinction between that on the one hand and coming in and saying, we want you to create this special thing for us and saying that person is now obliged, whatever that special thing is, to create this for these people. I mean, mm. again, sort of regardless of the issue of you know why, why he or she doesn't want to do it, um, that's different, right? Because now you're saying you have to create this this art form for us, and that's that's a really different different. And issue. it makes it substantively different than the issue of the um, of the employee in the Kentucky Secretary of State's office. Oh yeah, a few right. years ago, who refused on religious grounds to issue marriage right. licenses to, to to gay couples. Right. Where, totally different. Yeah. Uh, no matter what we might say, the issuing of marriage licenses is not itself an art form. Um, no, not at all. And and it's a person who is. Um, and even though you know I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that person's convictions, on the one hand, like you can't, if if you're if you work for a state that issues marriage licenses to same-sex couples, then your choice is to quit your job, right? It's not mm-hmm. to, I'm going to violate the laws of the state and yet retain my position and keep getting paid by the state, but not do right. my job, right? I mean, like, you know, that was just kind of a, you know, a really really problematic stance, Absolutely. right? I mean, what you're if you have a conscience issue, then you find a different position. So, right? Dr. Crumb, do you have a read on how the court might rule in this case? I mean, uh, again, <laughs> no one is privy to the conferences. Um, my my sense just from, uh, you know, the oral arguments and the briefs and everything else that has been going through um, is I would I would say if 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 I had if I had to guess, I would say the court is going to rule in favor of the Masterpiece Cake Shop. 
um, and, and, and protect the re- and protect, religious liberty and protect re- and protect the religious liberty claim in this case. I would say that's gonna, this is going to be a very narrow ruling, I think, hmm. and I think it's going to be a narrow ruling in the sense that they are only going to protect. Uh, they are going to say this only applies in cases where there is a specific um, expression um, okay. issue at stake here. And I think so it's really more about the free expression. It's going to be more about the free expression, I think, than about the free exercise. And so, and so, in that case, this will be an extremely narrow ruling. This will not sort of exempt. Um, you know, a hotel or a restaurant or how about a Christian college or university? Um, Christian college. I, so that I think that would continue to be a thorny issue. I think it would set a precedent that would be slightly favorable towards a, a college that might want to discriminate. Um, but it will it would not decide the issue in, in any in any way. Um right. And, and I think, especially because, once again, I think this is where the expression, the narrowness of an expression ruling would be. Um, again, providing education is not necessarily really an issue of expression. It's, it's related in the sense that education mm-hmm. is speech, but it's mm-hmm. um, certainly distinct um, in that sense. You know, colleges, we're not, we're not here producing art, <laughs> essentially. Um, with apologies to our well, fine art department. All right, the art department is producing art. <laughs> our service is not inherently right. an art right. service. Right. Yes, correct. <laughs> I don't know. We um, like to think of our students as yeah. masterpieces. On, on the other hand, I mean, and this, as so many things, I mean, this oftentimes this really does go back to Justice Kennedy in many ways and how he is yep. going to rule on this. And Kennedy, um, you know, was the one who wrote the opinion in, uh, in, in the Bergefell versus Hodges, which was the, which was the ruling that essentially legalized same-sex marriage uh, across the United States. And Kennedy... Kennedy's trajectory in that sense has been has always been uh, leaning towards being in favor of um, uh, basically basically gay rights. So he has been in favor of those rulings. So he was also right. uh, the one who authored Lawrence versus Texas, which is essentially the p- main precedent that led to a Burgefell. So so Kennedy's trajectory has definitely been on this side. So on the on that you know if you're just looking at sort of his history or legacy if in that sense um that would seem to lean more towards just siding with colorado civil rights and essentially saying this is um discrimination and you know we're opposed to discrimination and therefore therefore um you know you should have to make you know if you're open to the public you have to service everyone who's in the public Hmm. the nerdy side of me wants a saturday night live sketch Featuring nine cast members with with someone prominently playing Anthony Kennedy, <laughs> and they any decision they make, any banal decision, it's like they said, "Well, where do you guys want to go for lunch? How about Chipotle?" And four people yell, "I hate Chipotle!" And four people yell, "I love Chipotle!" And yeah. Kennedy goes, "Hmm, I could do Chipotle today." Right. And then they go marching off. Right? Um, yeah. Should we cross the street? No, the street leads to our death. Should we cross the street? Yes, the street leads to freedom. <laughs> Anthony Kennedy goes, eh, "The light's green. We can go." Um, you know, like I, I, I want, I want that, I want that sketch. Yeah. But yeah, that's it's very often uh, yeah. Um, Ken- Kennedy has been has been the wild card, especially on these uh, sort of Depends, particularly yeah. contentious um, rights based issues. He's never he's never allowed to retire. <laughs> People mm. have been calling for him to retire. In fact, uh, this is uh, although mm. I was just uh, I was just recently looking. You know, basically there have been some strong hints from the Trump administration and from others who essentially would like to see Kennedy. Well, sure they would. Every, right. every president wants Kennedy to retire because then they can appoint someone more ideologically right. consistent to yep. uh, to replace right. him. Yeah, yeah. Give the court a decided tilt. Yeah, I just want to mention a couple other cases that people yes, might want to be looking out for. I don't want to go into them as that. I think those are the two most substantial cases. Obviously, they, the United they States deal. of America versus Thanos. Uh, 
No, it's not that. But there is okay. Trump versus Hawaii, which uh, oh, is, okay. is interesting here. So Trump versus Hawaii is uh, Hawaii's challenge to President Trump's uh, travel ban. Uh, and essentially this argues that President Trump's travel ban amounts to um, essentially him sort of rewriting U.S. immigration law without uh, – um, without actually changing the laws mm-hmm. right. um, and that essentially Trump is in violation of U.S. immigration laws by not enforcing them properly. Um, and in addition to that, there's also the argument that essentially this is uh, this move, uh, speaking of discrimination, uh, is is based on ra- uh, racial discrimination based on or not necessarily racial, but um, religious discrimination based on Trump saying during his campaign that he wanted to enact a quote unquote Muslim ban. Mm-hmm. Um and essentially, Trump's argument is that as the chief executive, citing as all presidents do, their constitutional, uh, the constitutional provision to give that grants them the executive power, um, right. that essentially, uh, you know, he is free to enforce immigration laws as he sees fit, and that essentially this, you know, that essentially he does have. Um, the right under current U.S. immigration laws to make emergency or rapid uh, prohibitions uh, against, uh, you know, various peoples or countries. What, during the oral arguments, one of the most interesting oral argument aspects during the oral arguments of this case that was made was essentially uh, Hawaii Hawaii's lawyer uh, posed the, if I remember right, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it wasn't Hawaii's lawyer, it was, it was Justice Kagan. Justice Kagan, to uh, Trump's lawyer, um, mm. essentially posed the following hypothetical. Should a president in the future determine that they did not like um, Jewish peoples, could the president essentially embargo Jewish peoples from coming to the United States? Trump's lawyer essentially said this was a difficult hypothetical, but that yes, the president did have that right um, under their executive power. Wow. Um, and so this case Justice is... Justice Kagan is a Jewish person, so yes. we should note. Yes. Um, um, and so essentially... Um, you know, according to Trump's lawyers, at least, and this isn't coming directly from the president himself, uh, you know, the president has very wide powers. And so this case has enormous implications for the extent of executive powers over immigration. Um, Essentially, does the president have uh, the right to prohibit essentially whomever they want um, at will? Um, Or are they more constrained by U.S. immigration laws um, and and, and, uh, regulations in that way? So that's a pretty significant case. Any expectation on this one? Um. Once again, I mean, this one has the potential, I think, um, to see an odd uh, configuration of the justices yep. because this one has to, because this case has to do with executive power. Um, and, and in fact, the, the place of law, um, the, the justices uh, sometimes have odd um, or at least different yep. takes on this. Yep. And so I my my I don't I guess I don't have a good gut feeling on where this is going to go the federal courts have made it very clear that they think you know the, the i should say the lower federal courts have made it very clear that they do not think that sorry that they, they, they that they do not think the president has this power hmm. um they have generally ruled against the president in most of these yep. um efforts and so i would tend to think actually i think the supreme court will probably agree with the lower courts on this mm-hmm. that's i guess if i had to choose which side i think they're going to be on um i it just seems that you know the issues of the rule of law and constraining the president yeah. by yeah. the law are pretty substantive right um Issues and even those who are on the quote unquote right wing of the court um, have generally shown that they, um, you know, if if there's one thing that right. they that they want to uphold, it is sort of the constraints of executive power to some right. degree, and that seems like something that could appeal um, to a Roberts or to an Alito, um, right. and maybe even to Gorsuch. Gorsuch himself has right. um, indicated perhaps um, some sympathy to those kinds of arguments. Okay. So any chance we could get like an eight one on this? Probably not. Probably not an eight one, but yeah. I could easily. I, I would not two. be surprised if this was a seven two or something okay. like that. Yeah. 
Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, again, who knows? But <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> but that's right. but that's these, sort these of my are those are, yeah, these, these are sort of that's yeah. sort of my gut um, my gut take um, on it. Yeah. Uh, the case, of course, that just came down that is interesting is the Murphy versus NCAA that legalized uh, gambling. This mm. one is interesting. I'll bet you think it is I'll bet interesting. You, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one is interesting um, and in some ways relates back to the gerrymandering case because essentially the court ruled very decidedly in favor of federalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially this showed the court's sympathy to arguments in favor of federalism. They mm-hmm. essentially overturned uh, federal law that prohibited um, that, that prohibited gambling in favor of saying that states ought to be the ones making this kind of decision. Um, and so and so essentially this shows the fact, of course, we now have a 5-4 um, court that's essentially been appointed by Republicans. And so you would imagine that they would be more sympathetic towards claims right. of federalism given that. Well, um, that one is, was actually six three, right? That ruling. Yes, yeah. This okay. ruling was, uh, yeah. So, which indicates once again, I mean, that this is enjoys wider support. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, essentially, uh, what was the other one that I wanted to talk about? Oh, yeah. Um, there are a couple of so uh, Janus versus American Federation is also one to keep track of. This is one that essentially uh, tackles the issue of uh, can federal employees be compelled to join uh, unions. Hmm. Um, and hmm. so this one will be one to watch to see uh, basically how far the court is willing to uh, go in terms of, in terms of overturning uh, regulations that essentially require people to, to, to belong to unions and essentially then pr- therefore protect unions and protect union, right. um, public unionization. Yep. Um, one, that, one that people might want to keep an eye out on because it might impact their day-to-day pocketbook. If you're worried about your Amazon purchases, you might want to keep track of South Dakota versus Wayfair. Um, mm-hmm. South Dakota versus Wayfair essentially um, is a question of can uh, internet businesses that are not based in a particular state nonetheless be taxed by said state for sales taxes? Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially the question is, will you be required to pay sales taxes um, whenever you buy things from Amazon? And currently, Amazon does collect state sales tax. They do. So Amazon is already in compliance with state laws on these on these issues. So they will collect state state sales taxes, but they are not. But the the well, the issue is legally ambiguous as to whether they are fully required to do so, <laughs> and right. not all internet businesses do so. Right. So. Gotcha. Well, I think this has been a successful backdoor pilot to our Supreme Court court podcast. Yes, <laughs> yeah, there you yeah, go. I, this is super <laughs> fascinating. Can I, actually, I just want you to do this every week. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, this is pretty great. I have one more issue. It's not a Supreme Court issue, yeah. but it's still uh, something I want people to pay attention to this summer. And then I know we need to wrap up here quick. But the um, the the Senate uh, yesterday, uh, with uh, all Democrats voting for and three Republicans voting for, uh, passed a legislation that would restore net neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, in yeah. the face of the FEC voting uh, on a strict party line vote uh, to overturn net neutrality. for This is a fairly arcane issue, but the short version of this is um, right now Internet service providers are prohibited from throttling Internet access to various sites, even if those sites are direct competitors. So my um, Time Warner Comcast provided mm-hmm. cable internet can't slow down my internet service if I log on to Verizon's website right. or if I stream movies from Netflix, even though that they, they, Netflix is a competitor to, right. to Comcast. Getting rid of net neutrality in theory opens up the door to exactly that kind of throttling right. activity. Uh, the biz- business industries uh, have been lobbying heavily to, for, for, to the FEC to overturn net neutrality rules. Uh, various activists um, in the computer industry, um, in the internet industry world, have been lobbying to retain net neutrality. 
mm-hmm. um, but they've had a slow going. Um, the the generally Congress or the FEC certainly has followed the the business interests, but the Senate now has is now mobilized and has passed this legislation. It's been close. It goes to the House. I have no read in how the House votes on this, although my mm-hmm. suspicion is it probably dies in the House. Yeah. But this is um this is the last best chance to preserve something called um something which does impact most Americans on a daily basis, which is the speed of their internet. Has the president given any indication whether he would veto this or sign? Um, I don't. If if he's spoken on net neutrality, I'm not aware of it. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think he has. Although, um, my sense would be that he would uh, be opposed to net neutrality. Yeah, just given guess. his penchant for business interests. One of the best analogies yeah. I've ever heard, just to sort of understand net neutrality, is to say it's basically a question of whether you regard the internet as a utility or as a luxury. Um, Mm-hmm. It's basically is the internet um, like like electricity, where right. essentially um, where essentially we you know you want everything to be provided, you want everyone to have right. equal access to it, no matter what they're doing with it, um, you know whether right. they're buying refrigerators or whether they're buying computers or yep. Yep. Um, you know whatever they're p- wanting to power with it, they ought to right. be able to power it equally. Or is the internet like cable, where you basically say it's available to people depending on how much they're willing to pay for it? Right. So if you pay a lot, you get premium access and you get access to almost everything. If you pay a little, you get access to a tiny amount. If you're not willing to pay anything, um, then essentially you don't have access. Um, right. You know, you have to, right. you know, yeah. Right. Yep. Right. Well, gents, we have uh, so much more to look forward to, but let me give uh, listeners a, a, a preview of some things that are coming down the pipe here. I'll be uh, recalling at least a couple of these guys next week for um, Professor Mulberry's annual summer movie over-unders. <laughs> That's right. We'll be talking about what to expect this summer. I we're got the big board already We're going to predict running, so. what's, what's, uh, what's going to be awesome, what's going to stink. Well, uh, there have already been a few big movies out. Um, yeah. So, we'll, so we'll, we'll revisit those just briefly. And then um, I'm going to try and pull these guys together maybe once or twice over the summer, uh, mm-hmm. either for an EST check-in or uh, possibly uh, the fictional world of Harry Potter. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But we'll see about that. In the meantime, thanks for my uh, friends and colleagues here at Bethel University. You've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. As always, you can email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com to ask us questions. We'll try and get to those on, on future episodes as well. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your summers. And go Royalty. <laughs>